This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. Want a new podcast to look forward to each week? One that's entertaining, informative, and packed with actionable content? You know you do. And that is The Jordan Harbinger Show, a top-notch podcast named Best of Apple in 2018, and has only gotten better. Jordan goes deep with fascinating people, from authors and scientists to mobsters, spies, and hostage negotiators. During his discussions, Jordan pulls out tactical bits of wisdom for you to use to become a more informed, critical thinker. You'll learn and have a good time. He's very easy to listen to. My two recent favorites are Episode 972, Mustafa Suleiman, The Coming Wave of Artificial Intelligence, and Episode 843, Ellie Honig, How the Rich Get Away with Crime. You can't go wrong adding The Jordan Harbinger Show to your rotation. It's incredibly interesting. There's never a dull show. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show, that's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello, and thank you for listening to The History of World War II Podcast, Episode 99, All's Well That Ends Well. Last time, General Ludendorff of the Imperial German Army had just launched his massive offensive, using the men no longer needed on the Eastern Front. Churchill just managed to stay ahead of this Teutonic tidal wave and made it to London a few days later. As he met with the Prime Minister Lloyd George and Sir Henry Wilson, the new Chief of the Imperial General Staff, the good news was that Amiens had not fallen. True enough, all communications had been severed between the Allies, but the French town still lay in their hands. During the meeting, Lloyd George noticed that Winston was not nearly as stressed as he was and called him on it. But Churchill explained that although it was true that on the front where the Germans advanced, the British had been forced out of their trenches and so had no cover to fight from, the BEF was not, as he saw it, at risk of coming completely apart. The German assault, as massive and overwhelming as it was, quote, loses its force as it proceeds. It is like throwing a bucket of water over the floor. It first rushes forward, then soaks forward, and finally stops altogether until another bucket can be brought. After 30 or 40 miles, there will certainly come a considerable breathing space when the front can be reconstituted if every effort is made, unquote. Logical, but still, his coolness amazed the Prime Minister. This was the second of only two pieces of good news that Lloyd George would hear that day, and so invited Winston to repeat this at a meeting of the War Cabinet. Afterward, Henke, the Secretary of the War Cabinet, shaken as deeply as Lloyd George, wrote in his notes, Quote, our casualties are going to be huge, unquote. At the next meeting, those more pessimistic couldn't help but offer up that the Germans were still pushing hard on the retreating British. The optimists, though there were fewer in number, led by Winston, countered, yes, but not nearly as intensely. They were slowing down. Then he added, the situation would not be so dire had Haig not wasted so many men 
on his now-erased Flanders offensive. For three more days after this latest meeting of the War Cabinet, the Germans still had the momentum on their side, and Lloyd George couldn't take it much longer. He then asked Winston to free up a few days from his schedule to visit Foch, who had just been made generalissimo of all troops fighting the Germans. Then he was to see Haig, followed by the Premier, Clemenceau, as coordination was certainly called for. The message he, Churchill, was to relay was simple. The British needed the French to hit the German lines to their south and take some of the pressure off. But when Winston arrived at the new BEF headquarters in Montreuil, Winston and his party were shocked to learn that Sir Douglas Haig could not be reached. He was out horseback riding. Churchill looked around at the field marshal's office. The phones were ringing off the hook, each call a plea for reserves, which were disappearing fast, trying to stem the German tide. Other calls coming in were giving the losses of artillery pieces and men. The total at that moment seemed to be about a thousand guns and one hundred thousand men. But above all this noise, the visitors could still hear the rain pounding on the roof. How was Haig out in this weather, riding, when he should have been here, coordinating the British response? Clearly, politics was afoot. Deciding to move on, Winston and his party drove through Amiens and made for Paris. After a good night's sleep and a hot bath, of course, Churchin met up with Clemenceau, who suggested that they, together, visit the front. Winston appreciated the gesture, but recommended staying away from the exploding shells and poison gas, to which Clemenceau, the tiger as he was called, replied, C'est mon grand plaisir. It would be my pleasure. Besides, at this point, the French politician pointed out, not even Paris was safe, which was true enough. Shells from Krupp's Paris Cannon, or Paris Cannon, had been landing in the capital for the last few days. The Krupp guns had a range of 81 miles. But first, they met up with General Foch, who, with a large map, explained his version of what Winston explained to Lloyd George with his bucket-of-water metaphor. The Germans were still moving ahead, but their advances each day were smaller and smaller, as they lost momentum. And when it came to a full stop, Foch replied, quote, That is my affair, unquote which was nice, but not the answer Churchill was looking to take back to London. But the Premier was eager to see the battle, so he shooed Winston along towards Amiens. As their car got closer, they had to be wary of the pothole roads caused by shells. Then, getting closer, they heard the big German guns. Getting closer still, they then heard the small arms fire. To their left, as Churchill later wrote, Quote, was a low ridge crowned with trees about 300 yards away. Among these trees, a few dark figures moved about. I thought on the whole that we had gone about far enough, end quote. But obviously, it was not so for the tiger. He got out of the car and started walking towards the woods, which meant that, yes, Winston had to get out of the car and follow him. Suddenly, a shell burst among a pack of horses nearby. An aide ran up to the premier and demanded, as much as protocol allowed, that they leave to de suite. 
Clemenceau reluctantly agreed, but said to Winston as they got back in the car, Quel moment délicieux. What a delicious moment. By the time Winston arrived back in London, it was decided that, as the Germans were still advancing, though slower now, it would be best to feed French troops in behind the weakening British lines to bolster them, as opposed to a fresh offensive to the south. The British needed help where they were, now. A few days later, Lloyd George had a meeting with French officials and the American general, John Blackjack Pershing, as the Americans were now in the war. En route were 480,000 doughboys. Back in France, things got their blackest before a light shone on the Allies. The Germans had taken a rail line between Amiens and Paris. It seemed now that they would be able to rush up a huge number of men and start for the capital. But the German soldiers were spent beyond all ability. The Central Powers had been dealing with a British blockade of the coast since the beginning of the war. So, just as Ludendorff was about to start his best chance of winning this war, his men, the very picture of deprivation, only focused on looting. Discipline broke down as pantries of surrounding homes were raided. It was time to look after themselves, they decided. This, combined with French reinforcements propping up British lines, brought the German offensive to a halt. Haig's men had been pushed back 35 miles. They had suffered 300,000 casualties. But their line held. No one on the Allied side doubted Ludendorff would try again and again to break one of the Allied partners. Now that Russia was out, he had the men to do it. He tried by crossing the Amiens, then again just south of Ypres. But as much as the British and French bent, they did not break. But a key factor in the British victory, or rather this German defeat, of their objective, was Ludendorff himself. Out of all character, the general suddenly hesitated. He couldn't decide whether to push the British into the sea or turn on the French with a second attack. By the time he made up his mind, the British had buried themselves in deep and were reinforced by the French and with artillery from Churchill's munitions factories. So, it was time for the German general to try again. But this time, it would not be a simple advance, and there would be no hesitation. If anything, the frustrated German commander chose too quickly this time, much to the dismay for the German war effort. And Ludendorff knew this had to work. The growing American presence would soon be felt by the Germans, as General Pershing decided to put all available American soldiers at Foch's disposal. With this third push, Ludendorff decided that his idea of splitting the Allies had been wrong. Also, the attempt to push the British into the sea was aiming too low. He would correct that now by feigning to the south to draw the fresh units reinforcing the British to the north, back south, and then begin his main attack. His goal, the complete annihilation of the British forces on the continent. This would then allow him to focus on the hated French alone. The Poilu would be so badly mauled, they too would lose the ability of organized resistance. Then the march on Paris could begin. The point for this third advance was, ironically, picked 
by the new guys, the Americans. Pershing and his staff looked over a map and decided that the next German assault would come at the Chemin des Dames Ridge, just north of the Aisne. But the French put little stock in this, as there seemed little or no activity by the Germans in this area. There was, but the men, 41 crack divisions, along with 4,000 Krupp guns, moved into position by night and hid in the woods by day. Their horses' hooves had sacks tied around them to muffle the clopping as they approached. And as Foch, the leader of all Allied forces, disbelieved the American prediction, the only forces at the ridge were four French divisions of questionable ability and three utterly spent British divisions. As this area was on a direct path to Paris, Ludendorff's plan was to feign here and then wheel north and cut the British troops down, before turning on the French. But when the attack began on April 25th, hours before the sun rose, the German soldiers, making up the bogus assault, reported back to the general that after the three-hour bombardment and poison gas attacks, there were literally no Allied troops in front of them, possibly for miles. Their report back to headquarters shocked the general and his staff, as nothing like this had been seen since 1914. They were all used to trench behind trench behind trench, stuffed with guns and wire. Could the path to Paris really be open? The answer seemed to be yes, well, at least for now. Ludendorff decided to take this chance and abandon his plan to slaughter the British up north. Behind the shattered Allied line that had been along the ridge were seven more French and two other British divisions. But again, due to the number of unimpeded German troops that comprised this assault, these numbers were completely inadequate. And the good news only continued for the aggressors. The bridges over the Enne River were unguarded and undamaged. By the end of that day, the Germans had advanced 10 miles. Now we're along the Vels River and about 80 miles from Paris. By the end of May, five more French lines had been pierced. By June 3rd, the Germans had returned to the Marne. Churchill wrote to Clementine, quote, The fate of the capital hangs in the balance, only 45 miles away, unquote. But then the world, as they knew it, changed. Coming up the Marne were fresh American troops. True, there were only two divisions, but their spirits weren't broken by four years of war. As they lined up for battle, an older French civilian yelled, quote, La guerre est finie, unquote. The war is over, to which an excited Harvard undergraduate yelled back, quote, Pas finie, unquote. Not finished. Thus, the battle was named. The mixture of American professional soldiers and college students held a five-mile section of the line against five German divisions for five days. By then, Ludendorff's men were truly spent. The Americans then, amazingly, went on the offensive. But they would pay a price, as one in four were either killed or wounded. Once more, Ludendorff's plan, though this one was off the cuff, was stymied. And by now, the man had to consider the situation for Germany after the war. So, in July, he launched another offensive near Reims. But the objective this time was to capture as much territory as possible 
to give the Kaiser as much negotiating strength as he could. But it was too little, too late. More than 10,000 Americans were landing on French soil each day. And it was these very men that stemmed the German flow near Reims and then pushed back. Churchill, who had been in France for Lloyd George during this latest American offensive, returned home and told his countrymen, quote, When I have seen during the past few weeks the splendor of American manhood striding forward on all the roads of France and Flanders, I have experienced emotions which words cannot describe, unquote. Which is saying a lot, coming from someone as masterful with the English language as Winston. Hey everyone, Ray here. I've been using Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today. And like many of you, I think about my golden years, and I hope they're golden. I have a Roth IRA with Fidelity and another with Merrill. And I have consolidated them into one hub with Yahoo Finance. There, I have access to expert analysis to help me stay atop this ever-changing world. And with Yahoo Finance at my fingertips, I can focus on my goals of paying off my house and getting ready for, you know, me time. And since Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, they know what they're doing. It's the number one finance destination with their independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. With a community of over 90 million users each month, their real strength is helping you on your way to financial success. So, for comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. The Germans were the only ones to experience ups and downs during 1918. Churchill had his own Pa Fini and Passchendaele's that year. Money was still tight for the large family, and quite frankly, Winston's taste in the finer things. It was decided to let the Eccleston Square home and move into Churchill's Aunt Cornelia's house at 3 Tenderton Street, just off Hanover Square. And it was here that Clementine brought forth the latest addition to the Churchill family, another girl, Marigold, but in the family's tradition of nicknames, was soon christened the Duckadilly. The Churchills had been married for ten years, and so Winston, who felt things keenly and was never good at hiding those feelings, wrote to Clementine, quote, Ten years ago, my beautiful white pussycat, you came to me. They have certainly been the happiest years of my life. And never at any moment did I feel more profoundly and eternally attached to you. I do hope and pray that looking back, you will not feel regrets. If you do, it is my fault and the fault of those that made me. I am grateful beyond words to you for all you have given me. My sweet darling, I love you dearly. End quote. And in another letter, he wrote, quote, But at any rate, in these ten years, the sun has never yet gone down. On our wrath, never once have we closed our eyes in slumber with an unappeased difference, and always at your side, in true and tender friendship, as long as he breathes, will be your ever devoted, if only partially satisfactory, W. Unquote. Now, if we could put aside those beautiful words and sentiments for a moment, Winston was still Winston. He was even more Winston now. He, like the little boy he used to be, still did not like to be told what to do 
or that he was ever wrong. Once, when he was about to fly a plane a few years back, he climbed into the cockpit with a cigar. When the other pilot, a more experienced airman, reminded him that the cigar would be dangerous when they were airborne. Winston grunted, climbed out of the plane, threw the cigar to the ground, and ground it out with his heel, and then, staring at the man, kept on grinding it into the ground. One other time, in France, even more recently, Winston gave his driver directions, but obviously, at that moment, was at home, next to Mr. Cockup, as the directions he gave were completely wrong. After going miles in the wrong direction, Eddie Marsh, his secretary, took over and put them on the rights. When they finally made their destination, Winston, taking none of the blame, turned to his chauffeur and Marsh and said, quote, Well, it's the most absolutely effing thing in the whole of my bloody life, unquote. Winston was hardly ever humble or humbled, but when he was, it didn't last long. He expected the universe, or at least the universe around him, to bend to his wishes and will. He sought power, sometimes openly, sometimes less so. But at least it wasn't power for power's sake. He had a drive to fix things and improve things, and many admitted, whether they liked him or not, that the man could see or divine things that most could not. And Winston, even after all he had seen in the trenches, and when younger, as he watched natives of India and Africa slaughtered, still thrilled at the idea of military glory. He was still the warrior, perhaps slower and a little more round, but combat was still in his heart and mind, which was convenient because the war was not over. Not yet. Ludendorff was still hoping to strengthen Germany's position in any future negotiations. Foch was planning his own advances, now that he had fresh American troops to use, and Haig was not out of the picture just yet. He resented being subordinate to the French Generalissimo, and so made his own plans. And the core of his latest plan involved 456 of Winston's tanks, just recently arrived. On August 8, 1918, the tanks set off east of Amiens, and behind them were infantry and cavalry. Yes, Haig still clung to the horse. But as before, the men nor beasts could keep up with the machines. They, the metal brutes, advanced about six miles that day, an astounding feat given a war of trenches. But the area taken was not held. So the German lines fell apart, but then reformed. No territory changed hands. Yet Ludendorff called August 8th, quote, the black day of the German army, unquote. Because even though the lines on his map did not change, the British had pierced the sacred Hindenburg line. They could, and probably would, do it again. And they would learn from their mistakes. They would, eventually, get it right, and be able to hold what they seized. When Ludendorff heard of this breach, he cursed, not his men, but the German government, the Kaiser, the Reichstag, and even the German people. Why didn't his men or his armies have what the British had? But his men skipped right over the anger and went to misery, despair. Because up until that moment, the vast majority of the German soldiers genuinely believed victory was theirs. 
It was just a matter of when and how it would happen. And having that sustaining belief thus shattered, they wanted the war over, just over. Who won no longer mattered. So, as happens in war, the momentum shifted to the Allies and would stay that way. The Allied forces moved forward, slowly at first, but land once held, like along the Somme, Churchill's Plug Street, the place where Winston and Clemenceau had walked the edge of the woods while viewing the great German advance, became theirs again and stayed in their hands. And this line, with the Americans holding 94 miles of the front on the extreme right, the French in the center, and the British with King Albert of Belgium, supported by two more American divisions on the far left, held their ground and gradually took more of it away from the Germans. The fighting was still intense, the deaths staggering, and this continued on for another six weeks. By early November, Ludendorff wrote, quote, All is lost, unquote. Then it was as if the end sped towards itself to be rid of the misery. The German soldiers became mobs. Ludendorff was relieved of duty. Demonstrations were being held in the streets throughout Germany. The German Navy mutinied when it was ordered on a death or victory charge against the British fleet. And one by one, the Central Powers fell apart. Bulgaria has surrendered on September 28th. Turkey on October 21st. Austria soon followed suit. On November 10th, Winston was at his desk working when he was informed that Hindenburg told Berlin that he could no longer guarantee the loyalty of the German army. Churchill wrote of the end, quote, It was a few minutes before the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month. I stood at the window of my room, looking up Northumberland Avenue towards Trafalgar Square, waiting for Big Ben to tell that the war was over. Unquote. The time came. The gonging commenced. Yet Winston did not feel the cheer with the vast crowds on the street. Quote, Scarcely anything which I was taught to believe had lasted, and everything I was taught to believe impossible had happened. Unquote. Besides, their victory had been quote, bought so dear as to be indistinguishable from defeat. Unquote. In that, he meant Britain's 908,731 deaths, just over 2 million wounded, and almost 200,000 who were missing. The cabinet then met to discuss many things. Should an election be held now? Life does go on. Should Britain intervene in Russia? What peace terms should be put forth to Germany? To which Winston interjected, quote, a dozen great ships crammed with provisions, unquote. That should be sent to Hamburg. The response from the others in the room were hateful looks. Winston later recorded that night in his diary, quote, Lloyd George wants to shoot the Kaiser. Winston does not, unquote. Meanwhile, in a Pomeranian military hospital, a German non-commissioned dispatch runner was getting over a temporary blindness due to a gas attack on October 13th. He heard of the end of the war and cried through his pained eyes. He still wanted to fight. He still believed in the greatness, the superiority of Germany. And years later, Adolf Hitler would write of that night, quote, 
I knew that all was lost. In these nights, hatred grew in me, hatred for those responsible for this deed. I resolved to go into politics. Unquote. Greetings, everyone, from Central Virginia. So um, I'm almost back to normal after my basement was flooded when a pipe broke. Um, so I'm redoing some redecorating. And uh, I found another thing to hang on my wall. It's the um, the front page of a newspaper. For, it's called The Sun. And um, it's from uh, Wednesday, May 9th, 1945. And obviously that was a very big day for the Allies. Uh, the main the main heading at the front at the top of the newspaper is Goring gives up. Hitler had ordered Marshall's death for suggesting that the end had come. Uh, Goring was able to escape after being arrested, but he was captured by Texas troops of the Seventh Army. So I'll read a little bit of the article. Um, Sixth Army Group headquarters, May 9th. Uh, Hermann Goring, once the second-ranking Nazi, surrendered last night to the American 7th Army and declared today that he had been arrested by the Germans on orders of Hitler because he wanted to conclude a surrender of the Reich. The fat Reichsmarschall said he was seized by the Germans on April 27th, held at Berchtesgaden, and ordered executed. He last saw Hitler on April 22nd in Berlin, he asserted. He said he believed Hitler died on April 27th or 28th. But my favorite part of this article was that, even though he was captured by the American 7th Army, he was allowed to enter the hotel to drive up to the hotel that the Americans were staying at, that they had requisitioned in his own Mercedes-Benz um, automobile with his own chauffeur, a lieutenant. So he was all dressed up, uh, sparkling with all those medals in his immaculate uniform, of which he had many. So he went out as he saw it, as a winner. But he wasn't the only one to give up that day to turn himself over and to drive up to the Allies in his own car. A Quisling from Norway was um, also gave up that day. He drove up to the police station in his bulletproof car, got out, raised his hands, and gave up. On a lighter note, the Sun also reported that the curfew and ban on horse racing had ended, as well as dog racing, as well as uh, nightclubs being open past midnight. So floor shows were once again going to be able to be seen, and people could stay up late with the lights on and stuff like that. Uh, let's see. Also, the British were lifting some bans, and I'll just read the uh, first paragraph. Um, London, May 9th. Home Secretary Minister Herbert Morrison announced in comments today the revocation of a large number of defense regulations, including the controversial 18B, providing for the detention of persons considered dangerous to the state. So Britain was, again, just like the uh, Americans, starting to return to normal. But to end all this on a low note, um, it was also announced that rationing as far as gas and as far as food and stuff like that would go on until Japan was defeated. And they weren't going to, they were predicting that they could start building new cars about nine months from this date. So uh, the Americans had to hang on a little longer before life could begin to return to normal. Greetings again, everyone. Um, so I just wanted to thank a couple people. Um, my newest members, Catman S. from Lake Worth, Florida. 
Gary D. from Edinburgh, Scotland, uh, Timothy B. from Chandler's Ford in the UK, and then uh, there was an interesting one. Um, it's from Hominy Grill, which is a restaurant in Charleston, South Carolina, my birthplace. Uh, they didn't put their name uh, attached to it, so whoever it was, thank you very much. I think the the initials NK might mean something to someone over there. And um, for Aaron W. from Central Nova Scotia, who wrote to me that he listens to the podcast, I think on, on his iPhone, and the way it works is the image doesn't the entire image doesn't show up just kind of the bottom left corner of the image shows up on his phone or iPod which of course is a picture of Hitler kind of gets him some mean looks on I guess maybe on the on the commute to work or whatever but I am working on that I want to come up with a new image just trying to you know keep things fresh so Aaron I am working on it uh, as far as those that made donations I want to thank those people as well there's uh, Mark C. from Bend, Oregon. Thank you very much. Uh, John C. from New South Wales in Australia. and I think he's with Data House Software. I hope I'm okay. It's okay to say that. Uh, and then there's a David C. So they're all C's. David C. from Watson, Australia as well. And for and I'd like to thank Alex A. for buying another mug. He bought he bought. I think he bought the Churchill and now he's buying the Roosevelt so he can, uh, so we can toast them together every morning. So thank you very much, uh, Alex, for supporting the show. So as we all know, this was episode 99. My 100th episode will be coming up next time. I do have something special planned for you. But again, if you just wanted to um, send in something in an MP3 format and say something um, preferably nice, but whatever, just let me know what, what you feel or, or anything. And if you want, or if you have a tremendous ego and you want your voice to be heard by 30,000 people, you know, just send me something in. And you can send it to the um, podcast at gmail. Dot com, or you can send it to the Ray42Harris at yahoo.com. Either way, I'll put all those together. I do have something specific planned, but I'll be happy to tack those on if you just want to say something about the show or just whatever you would like to share. It would be greatly appreciated. So that will be coming out soon. I'm recording that on March 7th. So just get those to me because I'll be editing will go pretty quickly and I can probably get it out. Um, that's Saturday, March 8th. So, and then we'll move on. I'm almost finished with Churchill. I'm, um, I'm not going to go all the way till 1940. I'm going to stop at a, at a point, but, um, before that, but so we're almost finished and then we'll get back to the war. Um, so again, um, just thank you for everybody who's, who's helping the show. Thank you for everyone who's listening. I really do appreciate it. And, uh, we'll be getting back to it soon. And I hope you're enjoying this, um, this story of Churchill's life, um, Again, I just find the man very interesting, and, I, and I've totally fallen in love with him, which, of course, would satisfy his ego tremendously. But anyway, and lastly, I just wanted to give you a tour update. Um, I've had, let me, I've had like 23 emails from people saying that they'd love to go on the tour, but it just wasn't possible with the price, the way, the way it is. Um, so I've been talking to Terrace, and what we're going to do is we're going to cut out a couple things and try to bring the price down to make those people happy. Um, for those of you who have already signed up, you will be getting getting a refund for the difference. So if you were thinking about going, if you're one of those people or you're thinking about going in general, um, keep checking out geeknationtours.com because you'll see the differences that we make and the price should go down. And once once it is out, I'll make a, a short announcement. But just to let you know that we are working on that and there's just so much to see. You don't know what to keep in or throw out. We just kind of threw everything in there. Maybe we probably overshot. But so we're going to play with it and see what we can come up with. So um, we'll just figure that out as we go along. Um, I just wanted to happen one 
Sunday. I just want to see these places that I've been reading about and checking them out on YouTube is nice, but you you know you'd like to stand there one day. So anyway, so we'll we'll uh, we'll check that out as soon as we can. So please send me your MP3s if you want to be on the 100th episode. Um, I'll be doing that soon, and um, we'll have some fun with it. So as always, take care, everyone.